0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another great episode of Project Transitions Transition Points. I'm here with my sometime co-host, Stephanie Payne. How's it going, Stephanie?
1: Hi, Brandon.
0: We have a really awesome guest today from North Carolina.
1: Yes, we do. We have with us Dr. Douglas Engelman, visiting assisting professor in sociology at UNCW, also president of NAMI Wilmington and author of A Boy Broken. Hello, Good morning, Douglas. How are
2: you? Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about doing this with you all. So um, thanks. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. It's completely our pleasure.
1: Yes, definitely glad to have you here with us. This is actually not the first podcast we've done together. Um, You had me on with Stacy, and I don't want to butcher her last name. I, I remember Stacy. What's her last name?
2: Her name is uh, Stacy Colomer, and she is the, she's my friend and colleague in our podcast. She is the uh, director of the School of Social Work at UNCW, and we work together on the podcast and a couple other projects we're developing, Um, and I can say the name of my podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. I won't make you say it, Who Isn't Fucking Crazy?, (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: i love rela- that
1: title
2: so relatable
1: i love that title <laughs> yes, i yeah. um you know i had such a blast with the two of you guys i hope it's not i hope it's not i hope it's the first of of a few or many more yeah conversations
2: yeah. do you mind if i talk just a minute about the, the podcast and where where it comes from and absolutely yeah please yeah um so what we're trying to do in many different ways in, in the pursuit of uh, my career, and my activities with uh, NAMI and the whole mental health field is to try to what I call normalize. And I think I said this to you in, in our podcast with you, Stephanie, normalize the idea of mental health problems, mental disorders, mental illness, whatever you want to call it, um, that there are so many people. Who are dealing with mental health problems, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse over the years, especially since uh, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. That we're we're really, you know, making the case that everybody is touched by mental health problems. Uh, I'm not saying that everybody is fucking crazy, but that's the idea we're trying to promote. It's just such a ubiquitous uh, presence in society that it should be normalized to the point where we can reduce the stigma and that's really ultimately what we're trying to do so that was where that name came from let's just all uh, share this together this experience together and and stop the stigma that's that's what our our really what our main purpose is and as you know uh, with nami that's our that's a big part of what we're doing is just Absolutely. trying to reduce the stigma I so love it. everybody feels comfortable saying yeah i'm screwed up you know my brother is screwed up my parents are screwed up everybody is you know we're dealing with a very stressful uh social situation here and and, you know with capitalism and uh all the the impulses that that creates uh you know the needs for jobs the need for wealth the need for uh, progress and in all its different forms and so all these stresses uh, give us all uh, a difficult experience. And so we're all in this together. And why should this all be stigmatized? Right. So that's absolutely. Yeah.
1: I love it. Well, you that's my little uh,
2: let's reduce stigma speech. So
1: I love it. I'm I am a hundred percent on board. And you kind of already hit the nail on the head with one of the first kind of talking points I wanted to dive into today was I wanted to um, kind of ask you to share with us what your inspiration is for a lot of these things that you're involved in. And one of those things was the the podcast. And, and I think, you know, reducing stigma is, is huge and very important. And like you said, since the pandemic, it um, it's, we've definitely been hit with an awareness, which is, you know, it's, an, it's a beautiful thing, really, when you think of you know, in terms of progress and like, let's, let's tackle this. Let's talk about it, which is what we're doing now. And that's a beautiful thing. So, So, um, kind of
2: answer that question, sorry to jump on you like that as the question, the focus on the family and, you know, what was my motivation, the initiative. So as I chronicle in in my book, um, a boy broken, the, the boy is my son, Doug junior, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was uh, 20. This is in 1992. So this goes back a long way. And at that time, um, mental illness was even more stigmatized than it is now. Um, mm-hmm. Less awareness, less uh, understanding, less patience. Um, and you know, you're, you're asking kind of why am I focusing on the family? Because as a parent, this is very much preceding my involvement with NAMI, my involvement with obviously, um, you know, the mental health field in any way academically or, um, you know, as a, as a volunteer at NAMI, I had no idea about anything having to do with mental health other than what I, I talk about in my book is that my uh, father's brother, my uncle, had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. So we thought it was in the family somehow, but I just didn't know anything about it. And it was extremely stigmatized. And what I did, and I have to acknowledge it, is I hid it from my family. I hid it from my friends, our neighbors. I didn't want anybody to know that my son was schizophrenic. And so I think about that all the time. You know, this is what 30 years later, and I still feel guilty about it. I still feel I did my son a disservice by you know, not letting people know about him, kind of hiding his, his life from my friends. Um, and I feel bad about that. And, and that's one of the reasons I focus on the family, because um, I know from my own experience, and from many, many other uh, accounts of these experiences, that if the family doesn't engage in supporting the individual with a serious, even a, a mild, you uh, form of mental illness, but a serious mental illness, then that person has a much, much lower possible potential for recovery, for getting back to what one might think of as at least a normal and productive uh, life. If, if the family doesn't support them, um, they have a much, much more challenging road ahead. So my focus, when you think about when I decided to go back to school and ultimately get my PhD in sociology you know i think of all the potential areas that you could look at in terms of research or uh, being active in a a certain area of the field and i just felt like because my experience was so ingrained as a family member as a parent as understanding what close family members are going through um, as i'm sure both of you guys do um, i felt like that's what i wanted to focus on if you have to pick something you can't focus on everything. So you got to pick something. So I decided to focus on the family and yeah. uh, that's my pursuit. So that, I hope that answers your question.
1: It does. It, it really yeah. does. Would you, and, and spark several more naturally. <laughs> um, I mean, you, I'm sure, you know, with all the work that you do from a sociology standpoint, something I've had to, I've personally learned in relation to, to you know, my parents and wondering, well, why the, why the hell did they, did they, you know, keep this hidden, you know, what, what the heck, like they were doing the absolute best they could with the tools they had, yeah. you know, and it's just a product of, of, you know, but it, we're, we get to be kind of on the forefront of this change, which is a really beautiful thing. And you're doing such a fantastic job just, diving into it, you know, between the podcast and, and NAMI and um, I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of this, but you said a couple of really interesting things. Um, One, which was back in 1992, there was that uh, not only the overall stigma, but also a lack of, of patience, which I thought was an interesting thing. I hadn't really had a perspective on until I myself became in this field Mm -hmm. Um, because it does, it does require a ton of patience, but do you, what, uh, what I want to ask you is, is what do you feel like you were able to lean on or what supports did you have as a parent while you're going through that journey with your son, trying to find him the, whether you were trying to find him the appropriate treatment or You know, get him the help he needed. What that looked like? Did or did you feel like you even had any?
2: As I mentioned to you, your project transition reminds me of the uh, uh, facility that my son wound up uh, getting into pretty quickly. So he was diagnosed. uh, He was living in Pittsburgh. This is a little bit of background that's kind of important. He was living in Pittsburgh with his mother. We were divorced. I was remarried two okay. small children living in uh, Naperville, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. And when he was diagnosed in Pittsburgh, uh, he had an event in visiting us, and then he went back home and had a few more events, almost got arrested. His mother had him uh, committed for a 30-day evaluation. And out of that, he was diagnosed. She was dealing with rep- depression on her own. So she said, Doug, you gotta take care of Dougie, and you know it's mm. up to you can't deal with it so uh she brought him to chicago and then here i was like i had no idea what to do who to who to go to i the the policeman who had in the uh, event that happened in our home prior to all this uh when he was sent back here uh sent back to us uh, i know this is a little complicated but if you read the book you know the whole story (laughs) Uh, anyway he was uh a a, a policeman had come by. uh, He was with my daughter, his sister, and had a a psychotic break. And she called the police. And he told me to take him to Loyola Medical Center, which was a big hospital near where she lived. And that's the lucky thing. So this is my point. I was lucky. I took him to Loyola. They accepted him, happened to be in a different county that I lived in that did not have the resources that uh, he, they found for him that was just, they found a facility called Madden. Um, I think it was Madden. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's still existing and they sent him there. So I had nothing to, I had no, uh, nothing, no input into that. I just was like, okay, he's going to this place called Madden. What's that all about? Well, it's very much like what you guys have with Project Transition. So we were so lucky to find a facility like that, you know, over 30 years ago. And he was taken to Madden. He was. He stayed there for whether it was in the uh, individual, uh, the group housing, and then individual, and so on, different housing uh, configurations. Uh, he got therapy. He had a psychiatrist. He had all of that. And I had nothing to do with it. I was just lucky. That's my point. If if it hadn't been for him, that recommendation from the policeman to take him to Loyola, I wouldn't have known where to take him. I wouldn't have known what to do. So um, my answer was, I don't know yeah. what was, I was just lucky. And yeah. the point that I, that I derived from that is we don't want to have people in situations where they're just lucky mm-hmm. you know where it's a crap shoot so that's why i joined nami and i didn't even know about nami at the time i learned about nami after my son passed away eight years later um, and i was dealing with grief and everything and, and heavily involved in my church and through my church i found out about nami and that's when i started volunteering for them and, and, and that's where the history with nami begins but that's not until almost 10 years after, after this diagnosis in 92. So, you know, it's just uh, w- what I wanna do now in my career, the time I have to devote to this is make sure as many people as possible know about NAMI, know about uh, this touch point where they can find resources like you guys and like other facilities, other uh, clinical facilities, other providers that uh, we can connect them to, because if you don't have that, people just don't know what to do, and it's yeah. terrifying. And yeah. I also want to touch on this idea of, you know, why are we hiding? What what's the stigma about? And I think, um, I, uh, Stephanie, you mentioned your parents, and you know, I know what I did with my son Doug, you know, and I write about this in my book. Uh, as a sociologist, we recognize the impulses of a system that favors or honors or you know, enables uh, people to succeed who, have, who are more educated, um, more quote unquote normal, right? And so when you have somebody like my son who, and I say this in the book, okay, I realize, okay, he's got schizophrenia, he's never gonna be normal. He's never gonna be able to have a good job. So now I'm, I'm thinking about my friends And their kids who are going to college and they're gonna be quote unquote successful and he's not gonna be successful. So what do I do with that? And the society Mm. is kind of imposing this paradigm on us that we want our children to be successful. We want to raise, we wanna make sure we do everything we can to make sure they're successful, that they can go on and have a good house, a good job, a nice house, you know, nice cars and all the rest of that. Well, that's our system is is imposing that on us. We, you know, we're kind of a victim as a society of this this paradigm that's been created. And I, oh
1: wow, yeah. So
2: as a sociologist, I it all goes back to capitalism. And of course, I get a lot of you know pushback from that. Well, what's wrong with capitalism? Well, nothing. There's nothing wrong with capitalism. Here I am talking about we're we're talking about mental health and mental illness, and and I always wind up talking about what. What does capitalism uh, provide us? It provides us with innovation and medical technology and other technologies and pharmaceuticals and all that. But it also provides a motivation for um, not wanting to be, you know, mentally ill because you're not successful. You see how that that loop completely closes. You know, it's a it's a vicious cycle and. So cap, the, the good things about capitalism are there, yeah, but also we need to recognize it. Let's pull away from this idea that, hey, if our kids aren't going to be financially successful, if they're not going to, you know, uh, you know, be able to join the, the country club or whatever, those kinds <laughs> of things, or get a nice house in a gated community or whatever, those are what, what our aspirations are, and if our kids are not going to be able to achieve that because they're mentally disordered or they're, you know, they're, they're unable to cope or whatever, whatever yeah. the reason is, then we're, they're not going to be, we want to hide that from our friends. And that's where the stigma comes from. Yeah, uh, And, you know, I just, and that's the message I want to keep getting out to people is let's normalize to say, everybody is having problems. Everybody doesn't have to be, um, successful and, and go to the best colleges and, and whatever we talk about success, uh, you know, everybody doesn't have to be at the same level. Uh, we can be happy and satisfied as a society, and not require this of our children. And that's really what I want to focus on with with family. Oh, that was a real rant. I know that. No, time. no, it was it was perfect. It's perfect. It was.
1: That's a beautiful rant. A beautiful rant. I mean, I again, <laughs> all on board. Just redefining what is success what yes, is normal yes. as a whole and looking at it from a bigger picture because that's what we have to do when you have big numbers which we do we have very a very high number of individuals struggling with serious mental illness right now so you yeah. have to look at it from that perspective
2: oh so it's such such a complicated challenge and that's why I'm so glad I got into sociology because I think it helps me understand not only, you know, the, the, the both ends of that spectrum of, you know, wanting to be successful, what's causing the problems, what's causing the stress. So our society, uh, and I, here I am, I'm teaching students, right? I'm, I have, you know, at, at, any, at any given semester between 100 and 150 students I'm teaching. Mm-hmm interacting with on a weekly basis and I constantly hear over oh, I wish you guys could come and sit in the classroom. And I Stephanie, I think I invited you.
1: Yes. So here hear
2: the students talk about how stressful all of this stuff is the college experience, the social experience, the you know, the need to be cool, the need to be accepted, the need to be whatever. And you know, they're they're facing Okay, they're facing these stresses. Who's imposing those stresses on us? Those that's, those stresses on them. We are academically, we are uh, socially, we are. Um, our, the media is doing it. social media especially now. <clears throat> so, I, and I think so many people think about, oh, this this kid has, you know, uh, bipolar, or this kid has depression or whatever. Oh, that's on them. No, it's not on them. It's on all of us, Uh because we're imposing this, this, uh, it's almost, I see it almost as like a prison in some ways, uh, confining them to a certain way of being. And if they're not that way, then they're not quote unquote normal. And then they're not accepted. And that's the stigma again, that's where it comes from. So we're all contributing to, to it. and, And that's, I, I that's the message I want to get out there and you know I'm not doing a very good job of it but I'm working on it you know but as long as you're pushing the message that's all that matters though yeah, yeah. well that's that's all I can yeah I'm, I'm trying to do this in any way I can that's where the podcast comes from the book um, doing stuff like this you know just talking about it with in any way that I I can communicate with others about and and kind of making sure at least my perspective and i'm not saying i'm right about everything i'm saying but i think i'm on to something when i talk about the complexities of how society imposes um, this paradigm on us and and it it affects the way people react to it not only from the standpoint of the individual who's feeling some kind of you know uh, mental health struggle but also how people view that struggle from the outside and it's all uh, one big spectrum, you know. Wow. Uh,
1: I feel like a big point of what I'm hearing, of what I'm hearing is that societal pressure, and correct me if I'm not on target here, but societal pressure is a barrier to healing this mental absolutely. health crisis.
2: So I had, uh, let me give you an example. This 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 might kind of clarify or highlight what I'm talking about. So I teach a course called, sociology of mental disorder you'll notice i changed the name of the course from mental illness to mental disorder uh, trying to wait move away from that idea of uh, thinking about mental challenges as illnesses rather than you know mm-hmm. i like that out of order you know so yeah. disorder is a better to me a better term so i changed i changed the name of the course to sociology and mental disorder so what i do is i have a textbook and we, we go through kind of the history of quote unquote mental illness we talk about um going all the way back to, uh, you know, the pre-millennia, second, first millennia, uh, in terms of how mental illness is uh, developed and un- being understood in society all the way through to current day, you know, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, and so on. So we, we give the students a background in an understanding of diagnoses, DSM, we, we talk about and all that. So it's very academic from that standpoint, but what is also emerging in this course is, and this is the fourth semester I'm teaching in, this, this winds up being sort of a, a haven for students because they feel like they can talk about their, the problems and the pressures. And this mm. is where I'm more and more and more, and more every week we spend a full session just talking, the students just talking among themselves. And I'm just kind of sitting there listening and standing there and kind of maybe facilitating, but discussion about, oh, this is what, this is why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. And this is what my therapist said. And this is the drug that I used to be on. And this is what I'm taking now. And talking about in such depth about their own experiences and they all come away from it saying, wow, I didn't realize that I wasn't the only one. I hear this. Yeah. Over and over oh
1: my over God. Over. Yeah.
2: yeah. Those, and those open
0: forums type of classes really, really drive home what you're trying to push. And those are right. nine to 10 times the best classes you'll ever take.
2: And, and, and because the focus is mental health, mental disorder, then it is even more important. I mean, I have students who are literally dragging themselves out of bed who, who, wouldn't go to another class, but they're going to go to this one because it helps them. It, it <laughs> makes was... them fit. And I'm not putting myself out there as a therapist. I have no clinical experience at all, but it's just like, okay, okay, you guys just start talking and, you know, I might interject something every once in a while, but it's really the students just, you know, hanging on to each other basically yeah. and saying, you know, you guys are helping me. I have one student, um, he's going to be doing a podcast with us um, who. Told me, he came up to me at the end of the semester, he said, Dr. Engelman, before I took this class, I would never even talk in class. By the end of the semester, he was talking not only about his own experiences, he actually had, he's a film major and he had produced a video of himself talking to himself about his problems. And he asked to show it in class. We did. He didn't want to be there because he didn't want to. You know be sitting in the room while they were this oh. video i'll show i i can send it to you guys if you want to see yes it. please, yes, please. He, he's skateboarding around campus and you just hear him talking about what he's thinking to himself okay now he he said i would never even talk in class not only would i and let alone let somebody see this video we showed it in class they the other students loved it and his name is aaron aaron man, dude that was awesome and uh, so it was so freeing for him to be able to feel comfortable <coughs> talking and, uh, about himself and helping others too. So, people in the, the students in the class are just not only getting the, the help they need from students and helping them, but they're also able to extend themselves out to other people, which is so healthy. And so, you know, so they they come out of the class thinking, wait a minute, no, I'm fine because, um, you know, everybody else is experiencing the same stuff, you know, so. People just want to know that they're not alone. Yeah, exactly. That's a
1: big, well, and and hopefully, go ahead, go
2: ahead. I'm just going to say, we just need more and more forum like that so that students can get together, talk about their stresses, talk about these experiences and let each other know that they, they love each other, even despite whatever it is they're feeling uh, and that they accept each other. And it's really an awesome experience for, for me to be able to see this happen every semester. It's, uh, it's tremendous. Wow. And I'm hoping to get the class. So I'm, I'm able to teach it as a sociologist every semester. I'm also now uh, collaborating with um, social work the school of social work in doing this as a cross-listed is what they call it, interdisciplinary. And I'm hoping to get this class put into some of the other colleges because wow. I think students across the spectrum need this kind of experience.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely.
2: So, anyway, I, I didn't want to promote, I'm not promoting uh, myself here. I hope I'm just. More no, I, no, yeah, no.
0: I don't think we yeah. got that out of that at all. If anything, you were just- pursuing to how great of an open forum is for the for people so yeah, uh the students
2: yeah. yeah it's all about the students yeah so
1: well um, that societal pressure really that's you know at that time when an individual's in school you have i just i, I would imagine that that is that is the peak of societal yeah. pressure <laughs> yeah so i there. i think
2: so I, I i think and but it, it if if um if a student doesn't gain a different perspective, where you know this performance mandate isn't as important as their own mental health, for example, or the mental health of their sweet mates or their friends or you know whatever uh, the, the group that they're involved in, um, if they can kind of come away thinking, okay, yeah, I want to get a good education, I want to learn. To be a critical thinker, I want to learn, you know, how to navigate in society, but I don't want it to be all about being quote unquote successful. If we can drive that message, but one of the problems I'm, I think I'm facing, and this is kind of going off of the mental health issue, but it, how does the university uh, send two different messages? That we're not imposing on you the need to be um, High-achieving academic students. If we don't want to impose the, impose on you that on you, then how do we make ourselves a viable uh, academic institution? Uh-huh. It's like you can't have it both ways. You can't soft pedal uh, high academic achievement and at the same time be a highly uh, high, highly achieving academic institution. So I don't know what the what the answer to it? Do you see what I'm what I'm saying? That what the problem is, from a university standpoint, from an institutional standpoint, how do we do this effectively? How do we bring a better perspective to our students and what we really want for them, without and still maintain uh, ourselves as a high achieving academic institution? Um, it's a tough problem for the administration. Wow. And this is one thing, one area I'm going to try to get into more and more is is working with the higher levels of the administration and saying you know what message are we sending to our students what are we telling them at orientation when when we're talking and and how do we another problem this is another rant um how do we get all of our faculty to be more uh, accepting of students who are having problems who are struggling who who might not be able to go to class every Uh, attend every class who might might not be able to get their assignment in on time. How do we get faculty to accept that and to work around? And this is another huge problem. Some faculty members, frankly, just, hey, if you can't cut it, you know, you're out. You know, that's all.
0: You can't utilize an open door policy if you're not going to use the open door policy. Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, what about the yeah, what about the individuals that have, you know, intellectual disabilities like what makes their success how are we how are we prioritizing their success just because they like you said maybe they need extra time on assignments or you know need more time to take a test or can't attend every class What?
2: so there there's something called um, yeah, I'm sure you guys are familiar with is something called accommodation so you go to the um yeah. I forget the name of the uh student organ or the you know, student services and you you get accommodations for extra testing time or whatever well faculty don't particularly appreciate more than one or two of those in each class what if you had 15 or 20 students all coming up with a letter of accommodation and the and the, and the, the faculty member would be like wait a minute I can't deal with this you know so there's got to be a a, a a different way of, of thinking about um, how we how we define success as an institution, how we define success as a student, how we grade you know all of these things uh, you know how do we determine how well a student is doing other than well they got a ninety five or they got an eighty five or they got a seventy five on that exam that quiz or that paper or whatever, um, you know, there's, there's, there's got to be more nuance to it. There's got to be more thought given to it. Um, and now we get into a whole nother problem. It's also a tangential problem to the mental health of students, which is, you know, faculty, are they motivated? Are they incentivized to be really good teachers? Not really. Most of them who are tenure are looking for, are, are incentivized to do research because that's how the institution gets their money. So, it's a big problem. I'm not to am not going to solve this, but I I do want to be someone who talks about these problems. Um, I don't want to criticize it, you know using the old phrase "bite the hand that feeds me," but I want to be able to talk to the hand that feeds me and say, you know, "feed me something else, please," you know. Uh, so yeah, um, yeah well- this is good
1: maybe maybe the answer will be you know more individuals like you creating space for for people to go and share what they're going through and the struggles they're having and realizing they're not alone and it creating somewhat of a ripple that leads to a movement
2: yeah which, i'm hoping because it, be it some all- big
1: change. Yeah.
2: It all comes down to social movements. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that, Stephanie. Uh, nothing happens in our society without a, a, a real significant social movement. Mm-hmm. And there has to be something. And I'm not saying I'm the leader of a new social movement, but at least I'm trying to expose some of the areas that can be addressed in a social movement. And, um, you know, I think NAMI has the potential to be a social movement um, if we can kind of focus it that way i'm you know and, you know talking about nami and, and nami national and kind of what they're what they're all about is another uh a whole nother that's a that's a whole nother podcast pro- probably so uh, you know,
1: let's uh, do it i'm i say <laughs> let's let's speak it into existence you are president of nami wilmington so you are a leader I say we. Well, I say we just team up and, and manifest this thing. Let's manifest. Okay. Well, moment. I'm down with that.
2: I'm, I'm definitely down with that. I uh, I'm I'm only the, the president for this is my third month. I've chaired one one monthly meeting so far. I'm learn. I'm I'm definitely learning the ropes. Um, Chuck Eldridge, who I think I know you know Chuck, uh, yes. who is now well, our former president is now our executive director is really leading me by the hand and helping me figure things out, but I think I have the, the platform now because of my position in the university and combined with this uh, board presidency, I now have the platform to maybe have a voice that can speak beyond uh, Wilmington even at some point and, and maybe, you know, NAMI North Carolina, NAMI National, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. I'm, I'm taking every step I can little by little and just see where it leads me, you know, we'll figure, you know, see, see what happens.
0: You were in the best possible position to make that movement, to break the stigma. So.
2: (laughs) Well, that's what I I appreciate you saying that, uh, Brandon, I, that's what I wanted when I decided to do what I'm doing seven, eight years ago. um, That was my goal to put myself in a position to have a voice and a platform and, Be at least somewhat salient in in my message so that people would listen, people would take it into account, and maybe we can get something started. You know, I wish I would have, frankly, I wish I would have started this 20 years ago because, you know, I am, I am, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to do this, but, uh, you know, I'm going to do it as long as I can anyway, for sure.
1: So, what if, um, if I don't, if you don't mind me asking one last question, I am curious to know. What's on the docket for goals of yours and NAMI's for 2023?
2: Well, so as you may know, um, prior to uh, Chuck getting involved as the president a year and a half, almost two years ago, NAMI Wilmington was pretty much a dormant organization. And I've talked to a lot of providers who tell me, you know, in the area who tell me, oh, NAMI Wilmington used to be, you know, really vibrant, really vital, active, lots of programs and so on. And then it kind of went away. So we're we're, the first step to answer your question. The first step is to kind of get us back to where we're providing the basic nuts and bolts of what NAMI does, which is uh, family to family program program. Peer, other peer support programs, we're, going to, we're doing one at, uh, at the university um, called Youngish, so we want young people to attend this. We're actually putting it on, on campus, and uh, Chuck is developing three or four other different uh, support groups that we're going to be trying to partner with the county and um, Novant in terms of getting some funding to do more and more support groups in the providers' um uh, in the provider spaces, so we we take it to where mm-hmm. the people who need the, the peer support are, rather than having them come to us. So that's that's the first oh, wave great. of initiatives, which Chuck is working on, and I'm just there to support him and help him, you know, any way I can. And and then beyond that, um, I would like to have us start partnering with the university and have Nami be kind of leading into the. The, the leading force that kind of helps inform and kind of have the ver- in university kind of reimagining their relationship with students mm-hmm. and mental health and kind of see if we can get uh, UNCW to be a leader in developing uh, a more robust student mental health programs and support and so on, which is, that's a huge challenge because it goes into state funding and and all that. So this is sort of a a big picture idea that I have of bridging NAMI Wilmington and the university together to be a real force for family support for individuals in the community, and then kind of build from there through the uh, through the UNC system um, because we have affiliate, NAMI affiliates throughout the state, and every place that there's a university or a member of the UNC system, there's also a NAMI affiliate. So that's kind of my big is that kind of paint a little bit of a picture for you kind of where I'm trying to head this thing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's cool, but I don't know, you know, I don't know what the challenges are. I know there's going to be resistance from uh, financially. There's probably going to be resistance legislatively. I just don't know where the roadblocks and hurdles are going to be, but I'm sure they're going to be there, but you know, it's a great message. I think improving environment for fostering mental health for the individuals and for their families. I mean, what could be, what could be a better objective? Uh, right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's beautiful.
2: all All of this will help reduce the stigma too. I think so. Yeah,
1: definitely. Okay. So I did want to swing back to something we were talking about much earlier, um, in relation to your son and, um, mention of the program you felt the transitional program you felt ended up working um best for him um what do you feel if you can even uh if you can even recall what do you feel worked well for your son about that program or what if what if he if he knew what worked for him personally what do you Um, what aspects do you think worked for him or was it
2: Is that a tough question? Yeah. So there's, as you well know, much, and I, again, I I have to remind everybody that I have absolutely no clinical experience or knowledge. So this is all based on my, my experience as a, as a parent, right? Um, So he, I felt like he, he needed to have some place where he could be taken care of because he couldn't manage living day to day as a, as a psychotic Having constant psychotic episodes as a schizophrenic, he couldn't remember uh, anything. He couldn't. Know, he didn't know how to manage his, his day-to-day routine, and you know all those problems that come along with that kind of a, a very serious uh, mental illness. So he needed to get into a into a place where he was taken care of. So that's the first thing. So not, uh, Madden was able to provide him with a therapist with meds that he that were, were very helpful. He started with Haldol and I, I can't think of the other one at that time um, that was really pretty experimental. And it did help him, it did calm him. It did give him the ability to think more clearly and actually communicate. Uh, so that was the first step, just and having a place to live where I couldn't have him living in my house. I didn't have room for him. Plus we were worried about, you know, we had two little kids and uh, that just wasn't going to work. So he had a place to live food. Uh, they helped him get his SSA and all that. So that's all the fundamental stuff that, you know, I know you guys provide. Um, but then once, once he was stabilized, he still was not healthy. He still had uh, a heavy drug regimen and he would go off of that, uh, time to time he would smoke pot. I think one of the questions you were going to ask about, um, uh, other substance problems. Well, he smoked pot, he drank beer. He didn't get healthy until he was ultimately convinced that he shouldn't do that. And that's where what the real help, and this is the answer to your question, is you get the fundamental, you know, the needs taken care of, of having a place to sleep, somebody to, to kind of take care of you on a day-to-day basis, or we watch out for you, provide food, and so on, the fundamentals. But then how do you get from that place to where you can actually navigate and live in society? So he actually, if you, when you read the book, you see that he was actually into three different systems. The third system was where he met his therapist. And to me, it came down with Doug, at least. He didn't have the ability to to really achieve um, a functional lifestyle until, uh, a functional life until met the therapist that convinced him to stop smoking pot to stop drinking beer and um to focus on his emotions uh to focus on the things he needed to focus on to be able to communicate with people effectively to think to be introspective and, and all those things that didn't happen until like six years into his treatment okay all the rest of the time he was just stable and you need stability but you also need i think almost everybody that i've talked to who really feels like they're they're in recovery they can attribute it to having a relationship with a therapist that they really believe in and that that person was so odd because at the time Doug died he had he had been with her about a year as a therapist they were the same age but he considered her like the, the 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 woman in his life who he could trust he didn't have to trust in his mother and other women in his life <clears throat> and it's a it's a fascinating uh, dimension to his recovery that it wasn't until he met um met her that he felt like okay i can trust this person what she's telling me i should listen to i should follow her advice and when he did that he began to recover very quickly and he went from being um not doing very well to being to doing very well within the space of a year and a half after he met his uh, his therapist and i i chronicled that story very i think very thoroughly in the book because it's such an important aspect of his recovery uh to have the relationship with her that that he had. So does that answer your question? Does that help a
1: little? It does. It does. We're grateful for that therapist. Yeah. There's those. Yeah. And
2: you know, that's a real crapshoot. How do you find, uh, I, I have students talking all the time about in this course I'm talking about where they're sharing their experiences with therapists and so on, that they have such a hard time finding that person that, uh, you know, that they can trust and have confidence in. And one of the things I found is in talking to therapists is it's such a difficult job to deal with these challenged people day in and day out, that it wears them out, that, it, that they, they get, um, they just get, you know, tired. They can't keep doing it. And they, and so sometimes, and, and, Stacey Collamer in social work says, this is a real problem to having them have the staying power to just keep doing that job because it's so challenging. And it can be frustrating. It can be painful for them emotionally. So um, that's another problem. You know, how do we get therapists who can keep doing that job when it's so difficult? I hope that answers your question. It does.
1: Well, I think that is going to wrap it up for us it has been an absolute pleasure having you douglas amazing and
0: brandon, amazing brandon
1: thank, thank you, you for hosting i i hope we get to do this again soon i feel like we could we could really talk for several hours
2: absolutely i, I would love to do this again you guys i I've, I've really enjoyed it and you know it's a it's a great forum for me to Spew all my ideas, so I appreciate. It.
0: I think we just found our first recurring guest, so that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> awesome. Yes. That's
0: awesome. Yeah.
2: Okay, I'll definitely come back whenever right. you want me.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Transition Points. We will see you guys around. All right. Thank you, everybody. Bye, Doug. Right, you. Bye.